0: It's time for a little... something. I forget. My notes say I'm Professor Robert E. G. Black, and I'm here by myself. And it's time to discuss Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, but they're erasing me, and I have no memory of any of this. Except in as much as I remember that it's the end of the complicated double week from December to February, and I need to explain that to people who only listen to this show. And what's wrong with you? Why are you only listening to this show? There was a week back at the beginning of December, where I did a $1 review of Tick, Tick, Boom that kind of tied into Tuesday's episode of Mnuchia Machina. And then I did an episode 18 of Twin Peaks Radio that kind of tied into yesterday's episode of Groundhog Day Project minute by minute. And then I did a trash film episode about Home Alone 2 that ties into something I want to say today in this Eternal Sunshine of the Spa's Minute 6. $1 review and trash film are Patreon exclusives. Trying to build my Patreon so I can actually make some money off of podcasting and do this full time. And who knows if that'll work. How many shows have I done now? Michael Myers Minute. Dave Made a Minute. Annihilation Minute. The Room Minute. Cock and Bull Minute. Two Minutes About Time. Five Minute Arrival. Pump Up the Minute. I always forget one. Which one did I forget this time? I don't know. And in the future there'll be other shows. I might have a show sometime called Minute 17. I'm not going to tell you what that is right now. And now, on with the show. Carpet day! I'm sure it sucks. All these movies suck. When I first thought of doing Trash Film as an actual podcast, that was out there and regular and, you know, you'd subscribe to it and all that. I was doing The Room Minute and had already finished Mandy Sucks Minute, subtitle, a podcast fueled by hate. So I had already spent time being negative about film. And I can be negative about pretty much any film. Or positive. It's not that I'm one or the other. But I think you need to have room for both. Now you should know, this week in December, and a different week in like February, March, six shows of mine are interconnected. This week's $1 review of Tick Tick Boom kind of tied right into Minute 6, an episode of Minutia Ex Machina. Episode 18 of Twin Peaks Radio, kind of tied into Minute 6. It's Groundhog Day project, Minute by Minute. And this trash film episode, ostensibly about Home Alone 2, you could say ties into the Minute 6 episode of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute. It was an idea I had at the beginning of the week because I knew I was doing my Existential Trilogy shows, Nushek's Machina, Groundhog Day, Project, Minute by Minute, and Eternal Sunshine the Spotless Minute, myself, for minute six. Okay, so I was recently on, recently recorded a guest spot for the Next Scene podcast, except when this episode goes up, that episode will not have gone up yet, talking about Home Alone 2. I was a guest for part five which is mostly a scene between Kevin McAllister and, and the Pigeon Lady. By the time it got to that part of the film, I already, in re-watching that film now, I don't think I'd really seen Home Alone 2 since around when it came out. I don't know exactly when I last watched it sometime in the 90s. But watching it again now, I already didn't like it. It's beat for beat, the first one. And there was room for it to be something else. You listen to that episode of Next Scene, and you should listen to that episode of Next Scene. We were talking about different ways they could have restructured the plot. I won't spoil it here, because they don't really have anything to do with what's wrong with the plot. What's wrong with the plot is, unlike the first one, Kate, the mother, has no struggle. There's no plot for her. The first one was that great thing of her having to fly from place to place end up in the wrong city completely not even know where she is at one point everything's full
1: everything's full
0: i'm very sorry but it is christmas eve
1: what about another airline
0: Nothing available. May I help you get a hotel room in the city? Tomorrow afternoon, we can get you a flight to Chicago.
1: I can't wait that long.
0: I'm terribly sorry, ma'am, but we're doing absolutely everything we can.
1: Go ahead. I'm I'm sorry. Excuse me. You have places to go, people to see. Got a ticket there. It's good. Excuse me. Look. I have been awake for almost 60 hours. I'm tired and I'm dirty. I have been from Chicago to Paris to Dallas to... Where the hell am I?
0: Scranton.
1: I am trying to get home to my eight-year-old son. And now that I'm this close, you're telling me it's hopeless. I'm sorry. No, 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 no way. This is Christmas. The season of perpetual hope.
0: And then she gets in that rental van with... Oh, what was the name of the polka people. Polka, polka.
1: And I don't care if I have to get out on your runway and hitchhike. If it costs me everything I own. If I have to sell my soul to the devil himself. I am
0: going to get home to my son. Uh, ma'am, if there was anything at all I could do for do you it. today...
1: Do anything.
0: I-, I can get you a hotel room. You what? Can...
1: Excuse me. Oh. Can you excuse us for a sec? Can I see you for a second, please? Excuse us. Okay. Now, but here but your you got a little bit of a dilemma there. We got a crisis ourselves. <laughs> Allow me to introduce myself. Gus Polinsky. are All right. Polka King of the Midwest. The Kenosha Kickers. Hi there. Uh, Hiya. No, that's okay. I thought you might have recognized. Anyways, um, I had a few hits a few years ago. Uh, that's why I, you know, just polka, 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 polka. No, hey, Twin Lakes Polka, Dama Fuji Polka, A.K.A. Kiss Me Polka, Polka Twist. Well, these are songs. Yeah. Yeah, we... Some fairly big hits for us, you know, in the early 70s, you know. <laughs> yeah, we sold about 623 copies of that. In Chicago? No, Sheboygan. Very big in Sheboygan. They loved it, you know. I'm sorry, did you say you could help me? A- anyway, I'm dead in here. Our flight was canceled, so we gotta drive. So, uh, see the guy in the yellow jacket over there? By the budget sign? he's gonna rent us a nice big, uh, van, and we're gonna drive to Milwaukee. Now, I heard you had some problems. you uh... Getting to Chicago to see your kid or something? Uh, My son, we, he, we left and he, he's there. Oh, jeez. If you have to get to Chicago, we'll, we'll gladly drive you. It's on the way to Milwaukee. You'd give me a ride? Sure we will. Why not? You know, you got to get home and see your kid. A ride to Chicago? Sure, yeah, it's Christmas time. <laughs> thank you. Oh, thank you. You, you Do not mind going with some polka bums? No, I'd love to. You
0: know that, uh, uh I don't remember the names offhand. I haven't watched Home Alone since two years ago, I think, when I was guest on Next Scene. They are talking about Old Man Marley, and that's the second problem with the movie, and probably the biggest problem with Home Alone too. No, not the biggest problem. I'll we'll get to the biggest problem. But the next big problem is the Pigeon Lady. They're aiming for the same pathos as Old Man Marley. The problem is Old Man Marley was an antagonist. Pigeon Lady is only an antagonist for about, you know, three seconds, and... The movie wants to essentially feed the birds and eat them, too. there inventing a new metaphor. While deliberately dressing the pigeon lady and putting the pigeons around her like she's the homeless woman from Mary Poppins. But the whole point of Feed the Birds is you have to take care of these people. You have to take care of the birds, take care of the homeless, take care of each other. Meanwhile, Home Alone 2, you don't even get the impression that Kevin realizes she's homeless. He just thinks she dresses in pigeon poop on her clothes because she likes pigeons. And he's kind of an idiot.
1: So, do you bring your friends up here? I haven't got many friends. Oh,
0: sorry. And somehow he's aged to 10. When the movie says it's only been a year since he was 8. Someone can't math right from scene to scene. And then they structure it. It's like a ripoff of itself. And it villainizes the concierge and the bellhop and the desk lady. I don't know what we call all these hotel workers but they get villainized for doing their jobs. And it's got the stupid tape recorder that actually doesn't really amount to much because it's not very useful after, you know, Act 1. It's not Chekhov's tape recorder. Got a fucking cameo from Donald Trump as if we're supposed to be impressed, which if we're not already impressed by the Plaza Hotel, it doesn't mean anything. It's maybe mildly racist, and when they're watching It's a Wonderful Life and they happen to be in Florida, it's in Spanish. Because, you know, in the first film, they were in Paris, so they watched it in French. You could have him watch a different movie. You could have him not be sitting around watching a movie. Why do these people like sitting on top of each other like that? <sighs> What's my point? Well, the biggest. Let me get to the biggest problem with this particular movie before I generalize. There's no reason it's in New York. They were making a sequel. They thought it needed to be bigger than the first one. Yet they make it beat for beat, repeat of the first one. And then they're like, oh, but he's in New York this time. Which for the first, you know, 20 minutes I'll all give you the first act almost means something because he's alone in a big city and that's supposed to be scary except the whole point at the beginning of the movie is he's having a good time when he tells pigeon lady that he misses his family I don't believe it I always think I'll have a lot of fun if I'm alone but when I'm alone isn't that much fun at all I don't care how much people bug me sometimes I'd rather be with somebody than by myself he's having a good time until he got chased out of the hotel. So, it's not New York that's scary. And then, by the time we get to Act 3, it's a repeat of the first one, because he just ends up in a house. It could have been him defending the toy store, which would have made for some interesting traps. It could have been him defending the hotel, which could have made for some interesting traps. But no, he ends up at his uncle's house, which is being renovated, so it's got construction stuff all over, so there can be extra traps like a giant hole on the floor. I don't need movies to be perfect, but I need them to have characters that have motivations. Like, just being a kid, essentially this the beginning of this movie is just a repeat of the movie Big. Instead of being a grown-up, he's just left in the city with some cash. But they could have had a movie that actually, you know, discussed or commented on homelessness. They use a homeless woman as a prop, a plot point. Oh, sure, she tells a nice... You know, sad story about how she was in love once, and I don't even remember the details. I'm sitting here looking at the script, and I forget the details. Where is it? Take this for example. I'm scrolling down to find the part, but... Pigeon lady. I'm like the birds I care for. People pass me in the street. They see me, but they try to ignore me. They prefer I wasn't part of their city. And what does Kevin do? Immediately turns it to be about himself. Yeah, it's sort of like that with my family. I'm like the pigeon of the house, just because I'm the youngest. But then, the part I was scrolling to, pigeon lady, I had a job, I had a home, I had a family. Did you have any kids? No. Oh, I wanted them, but the man I loved fell out of love with me. That's not a story. I mean, it is. At its simplest level, a story can be a single sentence like that, because we understand what love is. The man I loved fell out of love with me is a story, but it's not a complete story. It's not a good story. That broke my heart. That's redundant while trying to add detail. And whenever the chance to be loved came along again, I ran away from it. I stopped trusting people. That's the entirety of her backstory. Oh, don't get me wrong. She says more. I was afraid of getting my heart broken again. You see, sometimes you can trust a person, and then when things are down, they forget about you. See, they're trying to make that sort of uh, poetry or irony. I don't remember how irony works offhand. Sean German, host of Next Scene Podcast, he could explain irony better. He's done it. He did it. On the room minute, I believe. He had a whole thing about irony. But anyway, they forget about you. Except Kevin's parents didn't forget about him. They didn't miscount this time. He lost them. In their attempt to actually recreate the circumstances of separation, but alter it just enough to be interesting, they created a setup where it was his fault. The first one was a combo of the daughter miscounting, cousin miscounting, I forget who was counting, but her miscounting because the neighbor kid was there, and the parents forgetting in the process, assuming everyone was there just because they have a stack of boarding passes. Kevin's parents didn't forget about him, but he says, maybe they're just too busy, maybe they don't forget about you, but they forget to remember you. I don't think people mean to forget, I think it just happens. And then he turns it on himself again, if he hasn't already, My grandfather says if my head wasn't screwed on, I'd leave it on the school bus. Then he says the whole thing about rollerblades, and I question whether or not he had rollerblades, because he's only supposed to be 10 in 1992, and rollerblades came out in 87, and he was 5, and he has this belief that he worried about whether or not he'd wreck them when he was 5. That's the kid who took his father's fish hooks and made ornaments out of them.
1: Getting pretty late. I better get going.
0: I don't see you again. I hope everything turns out okay. Thank you. Say goodbye to your birds for me. I right, will. Merry
1: Christmas. Merry
0: Christmas. If you need somebody to trust, it can be me. I won't forget to remember you.
1: Don't make promises you can't keep.
0: Then he leaves Pigeon Lady by herself anyway and goes on his way. If you aren't going to use your heart, what's the difference if it gets broken, he says. Somehow, ten-year-old Kevin, and eight-year-old Kevin a year earlier, is supposed to be the arbiter of mansplaining life to old people. But what the fuck does he know? What does he know about anything? What do we know about him? We have to infer that Kate works somehow in fashion because there's all those clothing things all over the basement and or maybe it's Peter or Sean's thing Peter's mobbed up, but I don't I don't buy it. I think it's a problematic writing. We don't have to define every character by what they do, but we should know what they do in some way. That was one of my problems with both the room and the room in it and Mandy and Mandy sucks. So what do these characters do? And I don't just mean as a job. What do they do as a hobby? What do they do with their time? Who are these people? One of my least favorite Christmas films, Christmas Vacation, hinges on what Clark does for a living. Or not what he does for a living, but that he does it. And we do know that he has a job. We know that he has interests. We know that he has things he wants. How does Kevin make these traps? In a better film, you'd have to be clever about it. But in a better film, you'd have an explanation. You'd have him watching something. Like nowadays, if you had some sitcom where a kid was going to get trapped in a house, at the beginning of the film, you know what he's doing? He's watching Home Alone. I watch basically any movie. Even ones I know will be bad. Because in the moment, almost any film's entertaining. Some are boring as fuck, and I want to turn them off, and I want to run away. But, you know, someone's got to watch this horribleness. Someone's got to be here to complain. I'd love to be moved by a film. A trash film is now where I talk about films that have moved me. Not toward anything good anyway. That was wonderful! Bravo! I loved
1: it! Oh, it was great! Dude! Well, it was pretty good. That movie sucked!
0: I hated this movie! Well, it
1: wasn't bad! Hated, oh, hated, 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 hated this movie! Well, there were parts of it that weren't very good It though. could've been a lot better! I didn't really like it! It was pretty terrible! It was bad! It was awful! I was terrible! Get him away! Hey,
0: boo! boo. How do they even call that a movie? Hated it!
1: What a giant, giant pile of shit hated every
0: simpering stupid vacant audience insulting moment of it that's bullcrap dude let's
1: go get our money back
0: where are we uh-huh. where are we minute six of eternal sunshine of the spotless mind oh uh, that's right i wanted to start with a very specific thing in this episode which is the opening of the original script interior publishing house reception area day it's grand and modern Random House Noth Tashin is etched on the wall in large gold letters. An old woman enters carrying a tattered manuscript. I think the Random House Noth Tashin thing was a... Was that a joke? But in the future they'd be combined in their are already. An old woman enters carrying a tattered manuscript, maybe a thousand pages. She seems haunted, hollow-eyed, sickly. The young receptionist, dressed in a shiny, stretchy, one-piece pantsuit, looks up. Receptionist. Oh, hi. Old woman, apologetically. Hi, I was in the neighborhood and thought I'd see. Receptionist, I think he's in a conference, unfortunately. I'm really sorry. Old woman, would you just try him? You never know. As long as I'm here, you never know. Receptionist, of course. Please have a seat. The old woman smiles and sits, the bulky manuscript on her lap. She stares politely straight ahead. Receptionist continued, quietly into headset. It's her. I know, but couldn't you just... Yes, I know, but... I know, but she's old and it would be nice. Yes. Sorry. To Old Woman. I'm sorry, ma'am. He's not in right now. It's a crazy time of year for us. The receptionist gestures toward a Christmas tree in the corner. Its ornaments are holograms. That's actually kind of cool. Um, old Woman. This book. It's essential that people read it because, gravely, patting the manuscript. It's the truth. And only I know it. Receptionist. Nodding sympathetically maybe after the holidays then. Interior, tiled hallway, day. The old woman carries her manuscript haltingly down a subway hall. She stops to catch her breath, then continues and passes several archways with letters printed above them. When she arrives at one topped by an LL, she slips a card in a slot. A plastic molded chair drops into the archway. She sits in the chair. It rises. Interior, tube, day. The woman is still in the chair, as it slips gracefully into a line of chairs shooting through a glass tube. The other chairs are peopled with commuters. We stay with the woman as she and the others travel over New York City in the tube. There are hundreds of these commuter tubes crisscrossing the skyline. Oh, it's Futurama. The woman glances at the manuscript in her lap. It's called Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Roll credits. This serves as the movie's opening title. The other credits follow as the old woman studies commuters and passing tubes. Their faces are variously harsh and sad and lonely and blank. Interior, waiting room, day. Subtitled, 50 years earlier. Every doctor's office waiting room, chairs against the wall, magazines on end tables, a sad-looking potted plant, generic seascape paintings on the walls. The receptionist, Mary, 25, can be seen typing in the reception area. Behind her are shelves and shelves of medical files. The door opens and Clementine enters. She's in her early 30s, zaftig in a faux fur winter coat over an orange hooded sweatshirt. She's decidedly funky and has blue hair. Mary looks up. Mary, may I help you? Clementine, approaching reception area. Yeah, hi, I have a one o'clock with Dr. React, Clementine Krasinski. Mary, yes. Please have a seat. He'll be right with you. Clementine sits. She looks tired, maybe hungover. She picks up a magazine at random and thumbs without interest. Interior, inner office area, continuous. Mary pads down the hallway. She knocks on a closed door. Mirzwiak, off screen. Yes? Mary opens the door, peeks in. Howard Mirzwiak, 40s, professional, dry, sits behind his desk, studying some papers. Mary. Howard. You're one o'clock. Mirzwiak, not looking up. Thanks, Mary. You can bring her in. She smiles and nods. It's clear she's in love. It's equally clear that Mirzak doesn't have a clue. Mary turns to leave. Mirzwiak continued, looking up. Mary Mary turning back. Yes? Mirzwiak, order me a pastrami for after. Mary. Coleslaw, iced tea? Mirzwiak, nodding. Thanks. Mary. Welcome, Howard. She smiles and heads down the hall. Stan, thirties, tall, spindly, and earnest in a lab coat, pops out of a doorway. Stan, boo. Mary, hi. She glances back nervously at Mirsby X open door. Stan, barely seen you all morning, kiddo. He leans in to kiss her. She cranes her neck to keep him off. Mary, reprimanding whisper. Stan, come on. Stan, sorry, I just... So we're getting a bit of this sort of the scene we'll get later, when Joel comes to the office scroll down a little bit get to Clementine. Okay, ba ba directs Clementine to a chair next to a coffee table and conspicuously placed a box of tissues. Mirzwiak sits across from her. He smiles. Mirzwiak, how are you today? Clementine, okay, I guess. Mirzwiak, nodding sympathetically, why don't you tell me what's going on? Do you mind if I turn this on? He indicates a tape recorder. Clementine, I don't care. He turns it on, smiles at her, gestures for her to begin. Clementine continued. Well, I've been having a bad time of it with um, my boyfriend, I guess. Mirzwiak, you guess he's your boyfriend, or you guess you're having a bad time with it? Clementine, what? No, I don't like the term boyfriend. It's so gay. Damn. Sorry, I wasn't ready for that. Come on, Charlie. You could do better. Mirzwiak nods. He's attentive, pleasant, and neutral throughout. Clementine continued. Maybe gay isn't the right word. But anyway, it's been rough with him, whatever the fuck he is. <laughs> My significant other. <laughs> and I guess on a certain level I want to break it off. But I feel, you know, it's like this constant questioning and re-questioning. Do I end it? Should I give it more time? I'm not happy. But what do I expect? Relationships require work. You know the drill. The thing that I keep coming back to is that I'm not getting any younger. I want to have a baby at some point, maybe, right? So then I think I should settle which is not necessarily the best word, I mean, he's a good guy, It's not really settling, then I think maybe I'm just a victim of movies, you know? That I have some completely unrealistic notion of what a relationship can be. But then I think, no, this is what I really want, so I should allow myself the freedom to go out and fucking find it, you know? Agreed. But then I think he is a good guy and it's complicated, you know? Mirzwiak, I think I know. I think we can help. Why don't you start by telling me about your relationship? Everything you can think of. Everything about it. Everything about you. And we'll take it from there. She nods. Thanks. Clementine. Um, well, he's a fucking tidy one. Exterior, commuter train station. Subtitle, two weeks later. And we're to Jill, The beginning of the film. Victim of the movies. Oh, Victim of the movies is such a good line. We'll come back to that. I forgot what other show I was talking about that this week. My $1 review of Tic Tick Boom, I think. This week. Two months ago. Whatever. It's all the same time. It's all the same movie. I think it's the end of the, what I wrote for this episode, actually, that I'm thinking of, which is interesting. Because it's all the time loop, too. It's all the same. What is it I keep saying about movies? What do movies keep saying about me? Anyway, began at minute six. Clem just said, hi. Joel, I'm sorry. In the script, Clem asks why. Joel answers, why what? She says, why are you sorry? I just said hi. He says, no, I didn't know if you were talking to me, so she looks around the empty car and says, really? He answers, embarrassed, well, I didn't want to assume. She tells him, aw, come on, live dangerously. Take the leap and assume someone is talking to you in an otherwise empty car. In the film, she just says, I just said hi. Joel, hi. Hello. Hi. Clementine, okay if I sit closer? In the script, she adds, so I don't have to scream. Not that I don't need to scream sometimes. Believe me. In the film, she's already approaching when she asks, then sits on the seat in front of him, but on her knees facing backward, and she asks, How far are you going? Wider shot to include them both. Clem with her back to camera. Joel. Uh, Rockville Center? Clementine. Get out! Angle change, so Joel has his back to the camera. Me too. Joel. Really? Clementine. What are the odds? She looks down and we angle on just Joel and it feels like he's trying to calculate the odds. Angle on Clementine as she sits up and asks, Do I know you? Angle on Joel and it's interesting how, one, Joel is on the left, now Clem on the right, the opposite of their diner eating. But two, that now that Clem has moved closer to Joel, we're getting these shots of them separately. Also, three, in the film, she recognizes him, but in the script he recognizes her and responds to the odds question. The weirder part is I think I actually recognize you. I thought that earlier in the diner. That's why I was looking at you. You work at Borders, right? Which suggests to me that he remembers her from before they were ever a couple. Like he'd already checked her out or she's just that memorable, which is likely. Or both. But also, it gets me thinking about how many layers there might be to who Joel was before their relationship versus after, and how he might remember her without some emotional attachment because she probably had some crazy hair color we don't get to see. When he went to the help desk to ask about some book that maybe he now doesn't remember reading because he didn't get to it until later when they were together, and then my brain drifts down a few more steps, and I end up in a place where I wouldn't be saying these words or typing these words if I hadn't been drawn into podcasting by Sean German when I was, and I wouldn't have been writing my Groundhog Day project blog at the time that Sean found it. Probably if. One, I hadn't returned to college when I did, or two, my wife and I hadn't been separated at the time, and I tried to imagine what I'd be doing now instead because I wasn't a blogger or a podcaster. I didn't even play Dungeons and Dragons on the regular, which I haven't mentioned that podcast on any of these shows this week yet because I'm trying to bank episodes of that one. I'm running an expanded Curse of Strahd campaign, and we're recording it, and maybe it's out by now. I'm not sure. It's called Adventures at Home if you want to look it up. But I wouldn't be doing that even now, maybe, because without the separation, I also wouldn't have gotten rather obsessively into board games a handful of years ago, and I don't know what would fill a lot of my time. Maybe I'd be blogging in a different way, or podcasting in a different way, I'd still be watching movies, but would I get to talk about them in a way like this? I don't know. Joel looks at Clementine, confused, thinking, a little head tilt. Angle on Clem. Clementine, do you ever shop at Barnes & Noble? Angle on Joel. Joel, sure, sure. Clementine, that's it. She says that off screen, but her gestures are so big that her hands come into frame. Meanwhile, Joel is little more than a nodding head on jacketed shoulders. She's big, he's small, she's loud, he's quiet. It's your classic opposites attract situation, except from time to time they get to erase their attraction and start over. And we're angled on Clementine for his now off screen response. Joel, yeah? She pokes him. Clementine, I've seen you, man. New angle on Clem from the side. Book slave there for like five years now? Angle on Joel, confused. Joel, ah. Clementine, Jesus. Joel, I would have thought I would have remembered you. They're talking past each other, but they still catch what the other is saying. In the script, she says, Jesus, is it five years? I gotta quit right now. He adds, because I go there all the time. I don't think I ever saw you before. Clementine. Well, I'm there. I head in the back as much as humanly possible, which I'm now buying. You have a cell phone? I need to quit right this minute. I'll call in debt. Joel, I don't have one. Clementine, I'll go on the dole, like my daddy before me. Joel, I noticed your hair. I guess it made an impression on me. That's why I was pretty sure I recognized you. But in the film, Clementine, is it five years? It might be the hair. Angle past Clementine on Joel. Joel, what might Clementine It changes a lot. Angle and Clem. The colour. That's why you might not recognize me. Angle past Clem on Joel. It's called Blue Ruin, the colour. Joel. Right. Yeah. Angle and Clem. Clementine. Snappy name, huh? Joel off screen. I like it. She doesn't seem to believe him. Clementine, yeah. In the script she explains Blue Ruin is cheap gin, in case you were wondering. Joel. Yeah. Tom Waits says it in. Clementine. Exactly. Tom Waits. Which song? Joel. I can't remember. And then we're back to the film. Angling past Clem on Joel. He looks down, his face eclipsed by her arm on the back of the seat. Clementine. Anyway, this company makes a whole line of... And the minute ends. And the crazy double week of mine ends as well, and I know that going forward I don't want to let these shows be shallow. This may be movies by minutes where we incestuously guest on each other's shows to add extra voices to the conversation, but that doesn't mean that the conversation can't go deeper or be more meaningful. I mean, I've been calling this an existential trilogy because these three movies are three different angles on what it means to live and love and to be alive. In a world that is damaged and divided and we're all so often just barely getting by. The flippant idea to try to make it deep was Minushex Machina, you know, the first one of the week of the trilogy, by talking to the guests about, like, their favorite movies, what they want from movies. And I realize that's a shallow question, but it's also, it also could be a deeper question if they answer it right, or if I press them on it. And I wonder now, and I wonder if there's an interview out there that tells me what is Danny Rubin's favorite film, or Harold Ramis's, or Bill Murray's. What is Oscar Isaac's favorite film? Alex Garland's, Donald Gleason's, Andy McDowell's, Alicia Vikander's, Kate Winslet's, Jim Carrey's, Charlie Kaufman's. Can you figure out what someone likes from what they produce? I uh, know you can tell what they're into. Maybe not their favorites, but you can tell what kind of thing they like, I think. Maybe not actors, because they can go in different directions at different times, and it can mislead. But you know, I, I said in this week, put this in air quotes, this week's trash film of Home Alone 2, that I want movies to move me. In Cock and Bull Minute, I made a bracket and also did a table for myself, a grounded theory approach, if you know what that means. Figured out what was common about the movies on my list and melancholy was a big one, but that's to be expected too, just like my obsession with movies. I grew up the tail end of the Cold War in a religious cult that told me the world was about to end, and I suffer from anxiety and depression. I'm probably autistic, definitely have some form of ADHD. I looked at my blog and looked at what I like, and while I don't like rom-coms, I do like relationships. I like melancholy. I like serious drama more than comedy. I forget the rest of the table. I've said many times in my blog and on some podcast or another that I don't usually describe movies as an escape, but they are in as much as a vacation is an escape from life. You don't get away like you're running away, but knowing that you have to come back after. But every vacation, however short or long, every movie from a short film like Time Freak, which I talked about yesterday on the Groundhog Day Project minute by minute, to the extended editions of the Lord of the Rings trilogy in one sitting, which I feel like I want to watch again this winter, it changes who you are. The river keeps flowing around you, but you keep flowing and reflowing and forming and reforming into whoever you are because, well, nothing is permanent. So, going forward, we'll see how we can change things up. We'll talk about movies and life and punctum and the eye of the duck and everything. And it doesn't all have to make sense. It doesn't all have to be good. But you do. I do. Forget anything from my trash film episode of Home Alone 2: remembering not to forget, not forgetting to remember, Don't you know, race people do erase experiences, figure out how to deal with the bad ones, but also figure out how to deal with the good ones, make the world a better place than it was when you got here. Thank you for listening. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute is just one part of an existential trilogy of podcasts. Tune in every Tuesday for Mnusha X I, every Wednesday for the Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute, and every Thursday for more Eternal Sunshine. This has been a production of Lemming Drop Studio. You can find links to more at lemmingdrops.com join the Facebook group Lemming Drops Studio Tour. Also, you can support all my shows and get access to some of them that aren't anywhere else at patreon.com slash lemming drops. Until next time. In Cock and Bull Minute, I did a bracket and I also did a sort of, um, what's that called? Fuck. Give me a moment. Looking for a word? You won't even know what I mean. And I'll cut this out anyway. What did I just say? Oh, bracket. Grounded Theory. noise cool You're still here? It's over. Go home Go. Without a doubt, the worst episode ever.